Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the second talk that Scott did at Tabor College, where he talked about Christians as culture creators. Glad to be with you, and uh, I'd like to talk with you this morning to continue our theme a little bit about vocation, a little bit about kingdom, and the harsh realities of what it means as Christians to bring the kingdom home and to bring the kingdom to work and to let it impact all of our life. Apostle Paul uh, began his ministry uh, and leaves the safety of the Holy Land in Jerusalem He goes out into the Roman Empire, roughly our world of Turkey and Greece. He ends up in Rome, but uh, he's imprisoned the whole time. Uh, And the Apostle Paul travels throughout these areas planting churches because he knew that the gospel planted churches and the central task of the church was to plant churches and to have kingdom communities grow up throughout the Roman Empire. Paul was a man without a map. He, no one had ever done what he did. No one had ever taken the gospel into the Gentile world and tried to get Gentiles to join the Jewish group called Israel. In fact, Paul says the church is the expansion of Israel. It explodes the boundaries to include people who were never included before. And Paul had no, there was no one he could call, no one he could email, You know he didn't have email, I'm sure you know that. No one that he could talk to about how to do this, because no one had ever done it. At best, synagogue rabbis had experienced some Gentiles converting or even becoming God-fearers, but Paul was expanding into an entirely different community that made uh, synagogues feel uh, very uh, uncomfortable. And one of the strategies that the Apostle Paul developed is found in Galatians 3.28 where Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, quoting from Genesis chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, he offers a variant of this, but in Colossians 3.11, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, He says, slave or free, barbarian and Scythian. So he adds barbarians and Scythians. And a barbarian is someone whom Greeks thought had no accent or had bad accents. In other words, they were people who didn't know how to talk the way Greeks talked, which was almost everybody. And a Scythian was a first century slur for a hillbilly. To me, it is a Green Bay Packer fan. (laughs) I don't even think I'd call them hillbillies. There's other words I would use, but very few of them are Christian. So I won't use them now. Or Minnesota Viking fans or Yankee fans or something like that. We know that God is for the Cubs. (laughs) It's in Deuteronomy 28. Blessings and curses, and the Cubs are blessed because they're the World Series champions right now. Praise God. 
My son played five summers in the Cubs organization, so I'm biased. And uh, he's now a scouting director for the Cubs. So we're into the Cubs. That has nothing to do with what I was talking about. But, but Dell said I had to say something about the Cubs, so I did. But Paul, Paul is expanding the church to, uh, to these new peoples. But the weirdest thing about Paul is he thought these people all ought to be together. They ought to eat together. Well, this made non-ham-eating Jews nervous about pork, barbecue-type Gentiles and people who liked shrimp and people who liked things Jews didn't like. And that was one tension. And Jews and, and males and females being brought together in ways that the Jews were unaccustomed to. Slaves and free, people of high status and people of no status being brought together. And people who are barbarians and Scythians brought together with Greeks in situations that they were unfamiliar with. And Paul said, I, I think Paul looked at it this way, you're going to feel really uncomfortable and I really like that discomfort because this is the makings of a kingdom society in this world. Because Paul believed that the church was the center of God's redemptive plan in the world, not the world. Paul didn't want to change the Roman Empire. He wanted to evacuate Romans from the empire and make them parts of the kingdom of God. But what was it like in the first century uh, to, to have this vision? This vision, no Greeks, uh, no Jews, no women, no men. No slaves, no free, no Scythians. It's a wonderful idea. C.S. Lewis, I mean, yeah, C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is such a lovely thing until you have someone to forgive. Unity is such a wonderful thing until your daughter begins to date a slave. And then you kind of wonder what's going on. What was it like in the first century for the Apostle Paul to create these churches where they were all one and had to practice it. This is not abstract theology for the Apostle Paul. This is lived reality. And if it's not lived reality, it's not theology for Paul. Well, I want to look at a situation where Paul actually brings this into existence in a little church in a little community called Colossae. There was a, a man named Philemon and he had a worker in his home named, uh, uh, who was a slave whose name was Onesimus. And N.T. Wright, in his translation of the New Testament, called the Kingdom New Testament, translates Onesimus, Mr. Useful, because the Greek word means useful. And thousands of first century slaves were named useful. It's not a nice name. It just means you're an instrument to be used in the house, and we hope that this is a useful instrument. So I'd like to look a little bit about Philemon and Onesimus and the reading of this letter, and then we're going to look at the letter called Philemon. What is uh, largely unrecognized is that Philemon is a slave owner, and slave owner means slave owner means slave owner, all right? We can try to whitewash this because this is Christianity, or we can try to whitewash this because this is the Roman slavery, which is not the same as New World slavery. 
And all we're doing is whitewashing a reality that this is a man who owned people for the sake of profit because he had more power and status than they did. It's not nice. It's not good. But that's what Philemon was. He was a slave owner. Slave owners typically abused their, their slaves, typically used their slaves, and saw them as simply an opportunity for economic advancement. And so they used them as long as they could, and when they were no longer useful, Onesimus, they were given their emancipation because they were no longer useful, not because they believed in any sense of liberation. But this man, Philemon, uh, is a convert of the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't think, I don't know if Paul led him to Christ, but he is seen as a Christian in the letter who has become a leader. And the church meets in his house, which means he had a household and all the slaves and all his family members and all the people who dwelt in that house, which could have been as many as 30 or 40 people in Colossae, would have all been uh, under Philemon. And Philemon is the master also of the house church which means he's probably the Christian leader in the community. Paul calls him a close, uh, he calls him a co-worker, and he also says that he's a person he loves. It doesn't really mean he's our dear friend. He means it is somebody I love. So Philemon is a slave owner. Onesimus is a slave. And a slave is a slave is a slave. A slave is someone who is owned, who has no rights, who has no liberation, who has no inheritance, who has no official legal family. So this is a man who's a slave, and he's owned by Philemon. It is estimated that in the Roman Empire in the first century, 30% of the population was slaves. That's a lot of slaves. It is also estimated, and this is pretty accurate, that approximately 250,000 slaves were sold on a block in the Roman Forum every year. And when the slaves were sold, they were put on a block um, near the temple of Castor and, and, and Pollux, right off the Forum. And they were put on this block um, without clothing. And they would have had a necklace, and on the necklace there would have been a sign and on that sign, it was required to list all the defects of a slave. Because if you sold a slave with defects and did not disclose the defects, you could be sued. Or at least you could get in trouble legally, and they could recoup some of their money. So, uh, we don't know how Philemon acquired Onesimus, but he could have been sold on a block in some city. Slavery in the first century was not connected to race. It was connected to status, and status was everything in the Roman Empire. Onesimus is a man of no status, and Philemon is a man of immense status. Most slaves, however, were born into slavery. There is a better chance than lesser chance that Onesimus was born to a female slave in Philemon's household. We don't know for sure. So it's possible that Philemon has brothers and sisters in the church, it's possible that his mother is also involved in the house church of Philemon. One of the most important things about slavery in the first century is it was 100% dependent upon the character of the slave owner. Nice slave owners 
are better than mean slave owners, even if they're slave owners. They're still slave owners. So we don't know Philemon's character, but he comes off looking pretty good in this letter. So maybe we could say he was a pretty good slave owner. Male slaves in the first century were always classified legally as boys. And this is an important category because of what Paul calls him in this letter. They were boys because if they were categorized legally as a man, then they could have a wife and then they could have children and therefore there could be inheritance laws connected to them. So legally in the Roman world, slaves remained boys. And this kept them at a low status in society. They could, it was to the advantage, they could be married, sort of. It's called contubernium in the first century in Latin, and the Roman law allowed a slave male to be connected to a slave female in a semi-legal or semi-official arrangement. But the only reason they permitted this was to keep slaves happier and to have more slave children who could be used as finances in the world. First century Roman slavery. So, female slaves typically were used sexually by the slave owners and by people whom the slave owner would give those female slaves. I'm trying to give to you the reality of the first century. It's not pretty, but this is the Roman Empire and Paul is bringing the gospel into the Roman Empire, and he's bringing kingdom realities into a vocation that had never seen vocation, had never seen kingdom realities before. Onesimus is also from Colossae. This is taught in Colossians 4.9, but the letter tells us seemingly that he has run away. Somehow, Onesimus ends up with Paul, who's in prison. Now, I believe Paul is in prison in Ephesus. Your teachers may believe he was in Rome, and there's a debate about this, and New Testament scholars love to debate and pretend like they're very confident of their conclusions, and this gives them a feeling of, that they know something. We don't know for sure, but I'm sure he was in Ephesus. Okay. And uh, it's a long way to Rome, and it's a long way back, and it's a long way back. That's what's involved in this letter. So I think Onesimus... Uh, has run away. There's a possibility that he wasn't just running away to escape slavery, which would be saying something about Philemon and his household, by the way. It's also possible, that, so a runaway is called a fugitivus in Latin law, or Roman law, and there's, there's another category called an ero, E-R-R-O, and that is someone who runs away to find an advocate in order to return. So maybe he ran away to Paul thinking that Paul could be his advocate with Philemon because Onesimus believed that he was experiencing some injustice. We don't know for sure. Both theories work. I subscribe to the fugitivist theory simply because I kind of flipped a coin one day and said, I'll just make a decision because we don't know. And that's as strong as my confidence is in that theory. So Philemon, uh, the letter tells us that Onesimus is converted by Paul. And Paul then sends him back because Philemon is the slave owner. So that's the setting that this letter emerges out of. So Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. 
And he's telling Philemon that all the power is in your hands because you're a slave owner, but you're a Christian, and I'm going to put you on the spot to see how a Christian slave owner responds in his house to see if Christianity is going to take deep root in every vocation in the Roman Empire for a Christian. This is an amazing moment in the early church. I, I think, in a sense, Paul is kicking open the door and he throws Onesimus into the room and says, now let's see what Christianity looks like when this situation arises. It's pretty dramatic. So Paul writes this letter. And I want to talk about letters in the first century and how this would have been read. We don't know for sure, but there's a pretty good chance that the letter reader's name is Tychicus. Because it looks like he read Colossians. When Tychicus got this letter from Paul, he didn't go to the house church of Philemon and read it the way lots of people read scripture in public on Sunday morning, having not looked at the passage until they got up and opened the Bible and said, now what, what passage are we reading from, Pastor? And they, start, and they start pronouncing all the crazy names wrong and stumble their way through scripture. No. Paul and Timothy wrote this letter together, and they would have explained to Tychicus everything. They would have coached Tychicus on everything, and they would have said, when you read these words, look Philemon in the eye. Make sure he feels the pressure of these words well. And when you read these words, look at Onesimus and say these words comfortingly and compassionately, and with love, because of how I feel about him. And when you read these words, look at the whole congregation, because this is going to be read to the whole church, and make sure they're all involved in this. Not only would he have been coached, the people in the audience wouldn't, wouldn't have sat there like Mennonites in Kansas, or Anglicans in Chicago, with their hands on their butts, under their butts, and maybe they went. It is common in first centuries when letters were read or speeches given for the audience to be fully engaged, making comments here, criticisms there, throwing things at the speaker if they weren't good, booing speakers who told bad stories, clapping for good stories. So it was a fully engaged African-American congregation in the first century. Call and response, it's called in Chicago, among my African-American pastors. And they think we white people are terrible at responding in sermons. And they're right. We're scared. And the, the most charismatic we become is we say amen quietly. Amen. They were fully engaged. All right? So we're going to look at this letter. And, and what we really need is... is we need, we need to see that Philemon, this is just for rhetoric and drama, we need to see that Philemon has been put on a block, not a slave block, but a master block. And we're going to find out if on the block he's fully Christian or not. So this letter is sent, and when the letter comes into the room, into the house of Philemon, Onesimus is with the letter carrier Tychicus. And Philemon's sitting there going, I hate you. 
you ran away from me. Injustice. But Paul's got this letter, so let's hear him out, and then we got business to do. All right, and then all the other slaves in the household are implicated in whatever happens to Onesimus. So the slaves in the audience are cheering for Onesimus. And when he reads certain letters, they're going, ooh, yeah, preach it. And the household members who are connected to Philemon, family members, his wife and other children, are going to be in the household, and they're worried about Onesimus being in the room. They're thinking, what is going on here? What do we do? What's Paul talking about this? Why is he back in this, in our house? What has he done? Why was he so unjust to us? All right? Is that the setting? You all right with me now? We're going to read Philemon. I'll try to be Tychicus. But remember this. Tychicus is Paul. The letter is Paul in the room. So when he read this letter, the audience saw Paul. They did not see Tychicus. They did not see letter. They knew Paul was speaking. In fact, letters are sometimes called in the Greek world parousia, the Greek word for appearance or manifestation. They are a manifestation of the, of the writer in the room. Now, I'm going to encourage you uh, to be probably unlike normal, and if you, you think there's a way to respond properly, you've identified with Onesimus or Philemon or Paul, you just speak up while we're reading this letter. And don't be quiet. I know it's chapel, but we're going to violate all the customs of chapel. Is that all right? We can, we can be rowdy. Don't be rowdy. Okay, let's keep it semi. No, let's not. So Paul comes in the, in, the, in the house, or he doesn't, but the Tychicus comes in the house, and Onesimus is over here, and Philemon is over here. So I'm going to be looking at Philemon, and I'm going to look at Onesimus, okay? Is there any two people who want to come up here and stand up here? Dell volunteered. You want to be a slave or a slave owner? I'll be the slave owner. You'll be the slave owner. Okay. All right. This wasn't planned. Am I saying okay? It's okay. All right. This is, you're the slave. You're Onesimus. Don't get too close to me. You're making me nervous. He's going to sit down. Can we sit? That's a little comfortable, but okay. We'll go with it. So we come in the letter. I'm going to read. I'm Tychicus. Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Paul didn't write this letter alone. To Philemon, a man I love. That's not very good. All right. <laughs> and a fellow worker. Also to Aphia, maybe his wife, and our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you've got to get more serious now. It's going to get serious. Now, what's going to happen right now? I'm just going to give you a little hint. Philemon's completely baffled by what's going on because he doesn't know what's happening in this letter. This guy knows everything that's happening, and he's hanging on this guy's response. All right? And Paul is going to, I think a good way of saying this, he's going to butter him up. He is going to praise this man in public. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. 
because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray, now Paul goes abstract here, but we know what he's saying. He doesn't. I love this sentence. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing and everything we share for the sake of Christ. You're going, I think I like that, but what does that mean? He knows what it means. People who are fellow slaves know what it means, but he is not quite sure what this means. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now, don't forget that word, refreshed. It's going to come back and bite him on the Old Testament side. The back side. It's in the back of my Bible. Okay. Therefore, this is, this is rhetorically clever, but it's obvious. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, you don't know what that is, but we know, yet I prefer, like a parent, to appeal to you on the basis of love. So I want, you're not being very responsive. Come on, you got to get into this. Okay. So he's just said, I want you to respond on love, not because of, because you ought to. Now Paul draws sympathy in his argument. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's good. That's good. It took you nine verses to wake up. That I appeal to you for my son, son Onesimus. Good. Who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. You know he was useless. Come on, shake your head. He's totally useless. Right? His whole family's on his side. But now he's become useful both to you and to me. But I am sending him who is my very heart. And you used to be good at heart, people's hearts. Back to you. I would have liked to have keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. This is a replacement, substitution. He is now as good as him in co-ministering. That's a pretty radical move by Paul. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. So that any favor that you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. This is pressure. Because he's all but saying, you got to do something, but I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you better do it, but I want you to do it because you want to do it. It's really pushing him. It's rhetorically refined for what he's doing. Paul now becomes semi-Calvinistic. He says, perhaps, 
He's explaining the runaway situation. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a while was that you might have him back forever. Pretty interesting move. It's a little Calvinistic, not quite. It's biblical. But now listen to these words. No longer as a slave. But better than a slave. As a dear brother. A brother I love. So Paul has just now said, neither slave nor free. By calling him a brother. He's a son. He's a brother. He's no longer a slave. He's very, very dear to me, but even dearer to you. Now, when you teach Greek, you'll find out this is an impossible sentence in Greek, but he makes it communicate, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, the pressure's on. (laughs) If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. His response to him is a response to Paul. His response to Paul is a response to him. Paul has just tied himself at the hip with a slave in the church and said, now we're going to find out what it means, neither slave nor, nor free. It's a beautiful moment in the early church. If he has done any wrong, and he has, all right, if he's done any wrong or owes you anything, Charge it to me. We have no idea where Paul's getting the money to pay off debts, but he's working with his hands. All right, now Paul, for the first time in the letter, picks up his own, picks up the pen and writes. And he he tells us at other times, he couldn't write very well. His script did not look like, he looked like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's. (laughs) I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. This is an IOU. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. Voluntary, brother. Out of love, brother. Not because you have to. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you. Refresh my heart in Christ. You've refreshed the hearts of others. Now refresh mine, which means welcome him. Now listen to this slip. This is a slider in baseball on the outside corner with 0 and 2. Confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And now, a change up. And one more thing prepare a guest room for me. Because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. You've been praying me to come, I'm coming. And when I come, I'm looking for him first. And when I find out how you responded. So Paul finishes the letter by mentioning names. Epaphras, the church planter in this church. My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends you greetings. So to Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, now, we have this letter. We don't know what happened. It's all in Dell's hand. 
Stand up, young men. Stand up, stand up, and let's see your response. There's only one legitimate one. We'll find out if brethren can hug. <laughs> Do Mennonites hug? Okay. It's okay. A bro hug. <laughs> I think that this is one of the most dramatic moments in the church because this is the reality of a first century neither slave nor Greek moment. But there's something more about this, and that is this is the kingdom of God breaking into a household, transforming hierarchy, status, and culture, subverting the Roman Empire, and creating instead a culture connected to Jesus. So we've seen in this letter the realities of first century Christianity put on display. Here's my challenge to you. When you realize that everybody in your life in Christ is a brother and sister, it transforms relationships. There is no hierarchy. There is brothers and sisters who have various responsibilities and roles in life, but there is no hierarchy because there is a completely flat line of all Christians, and Jesus alone is the Lord. And Paul brought that community into Colossae in this letter. And he put Philemon, I think that this is dramatically and rhetorically a really potent moment. He really sticks it to you. He says, you're going to have to make the choice. There's only one right choice but you're going to have to make it, and it better be the right one, but you have to make it. He just keeps going back and forth, saying the only response is to welcome him. To welcome him is to bring him back. It is to reconcile. It also involved restitution, because Paul was willing to pay all the debts, because slaves, when they ran away, always stole things, because they needed a few days' journey provisions. So they stole things. And so he brings... He brings all this into the room and says, now that we're Christians, we're going to have to learn to live in a different way. You want to make justice, you can take him to prison, you can put him to death, depending on the severity of his injustice. But not in the church. There's forgiveness in the church. There's grace. There's reconciliation. And I want to see you take Onesimus and put him at the table. And all the slaves in the household are all thrilled by this news because they become brothers and sisters if Onesimus is a brother and sister. And Philemon reconciles with them because they were put in the hot seat because in the Roman world, every slave in the household was culpable when a slave ran away because it is assumed that they know and they're lying. It's like reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. So I believe that this letter is a potent letter illustrating the nature of Christianity in the first century. That Christianity was about, in a sense, a social experiment of equalizing and treating one another as brothers and sisters in a way that would transform all of our existence. There's another side to this, and this is where I'll conclude with, and that is this, that the vocation of the household was transformed by the church. It was in the church 
that the world of the Roman Empire would be subverted. We have a lot of people today who would like to change the world by voting in the right candidate. The right candidate will not change the world. God has called the church to change the world by becoming the kingdom of God in a local church. I would urge you to see the church as the agent of change in the world because for Paul, the church was the place where slavery was going to end and where brotherhood and sisterhood were going to be established. Thank you very much.